Fox Sports is the home of Australian rugby, and this is the official Fox Rugby Podcast with your host, Nick McArdle. It is terrific to be back with you for another week on the Fox Rugby Podcast. Thanks very much for your company. I'm here with Sam Worthington and Christy Doran from foxsports.com.au and a very special guest this week, Dan Parks. You might remember the name or recognise the name. Dan, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Nick. It's really nice to be here. Um, 66 tests for Scotland between 2004 and 2012. I'm going to stop you there, Nick. It's 67. Oh! Yeah, this, I, I know you've probably looked up Wikipedia or Wikipedia, but this happens every <laughs> single time someone comes at me with this. And I'm sorry, at 67. Do you know that... On the record. Now, I recall that lunch that we did together a couple of years ago. Yes. And I think I made exactly the same as <laughs> I think you did. I'm a very, and I think I pulled you off on I'm it I'm a slow learner. All That's right. okay. That's All right, well, I'm going to roll good. the dice Keep on going. some other numbers. 107 games for Glasgow. Roundabout, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, 50 for Connacht. Yes. Yeah. The number. Oh, yes. I'm on a roll. 38 for the Cardiff Blues. Yeah, it sounds about right. And there was a handful for, uh, for Leeds in there. At the beginning of the stint too, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. I played, uh, oh, would have been nine, maybe ten matches for Leeds back in... Still, They're still finding sand there as well. That's oh, a... yeah, well, they, exactly, <laughs> we'll, back in the we'll day. We'll get to that. Yeah, that was my <laughs> sand days. Born in Hornsby in yes. Sydney and you end up playing 67 tests for Scotland. How? Why? How, how did that happen? Well... Uh, it wasn't sort of planned. I think initially, you know, like any boy's little dream, you wanted to play, you know, for me it was either cricket or, or rugby league back in the day for, for well, professionally, I guess, to start with and ideally for Australia. But uh, as circumstance went, I didn't get much opportunity when I was playing uh, club rugby here in Sydney and I sort of had – that was back in the, the three super rugby franchises, Queensland, New South Wales and ACT and – uh, up in Queensland, there was Elton Flatley and Shane Drum. And then in Sydney, we had Manny Edmonds, Duncan McRae, um, a young Sean Byrne, a young Tim Donnelly and Brock James. There was uh, numerous players coming through. And then in Canberra, obviously, Stephen Larkin was there. So it was pretty difficult to um, to get involved. And obviously, I had Scottish uh, uh, ancestry. And um, in 2003, I decided to to give it a shot, go over there uh, full-time and, and try and be a pro. And um, I was sort of playing semi-professionally here in Sydney and it just worked out that Glasgow uh, got in touch about a week later and uh, got a two-year contract, which I was over the moon with. And, uh, yeah. A week later, that's pretty quick. It well, it happened. Promise. It, it did happen very quick, actually, because I had that stint in Leeds two years previous. And when I was there in Leeds, uh, Sir Ian McGeekin, who was heavily involved with Scotland Rugby and always will be, he had sort of noticed me at Leeds and made a few inquiries, but I wasn't ready to commit at that stage in my life. I was only a young fella and very much a homebody. And uh, anyway, a bit more mature and a couple of years later and I decided it was time to go. And so that's what I did. And on the back of that, um, I was playing, enjoying myself with Glasgow Rugby for about a month or two. Then the World Cup started uh, in 2003, and it was obviously in Australia, ironically, and mm. I got a phone call at the time from Matt Williams, who was uh, obviously keeping an eye on Scotland rugby from Australia. He was going to be taking over Scotland after the World Cup, and and he just sort of said, mate, just letting you know, because I didn't know Matt from Borough Soap, never met him before in my life, and he said, mate, if you work hard, um, there's going to be a real opportunity here for you to potentially to get um, international rugby under your belt, and again, that came as a bit of a surprise to me, but a real I guess, motivation and a real lift. So I guess from there, the rest is history. And then 
I think that phone call was sort of October time of 03 and then I got my first cap in start of February uh, 2004 against Wales. Mm. It's very common now for players to move countries and, and you know, with, with the ancestry laws and, and throw their lot in um, with another country, maybe slightly less common back in back when you first started but how were you welcomed um into the fold um you know when you, when you are taking a local player's spot aren't you exactly that's a very good question and uh i was um i was completely unaware that that would have been an issue obviously quite naive on my behalf because i probably should have been aware but i just thought well clearly they want you know my idea would be there's whoever's available to be picked um you get picked on your merits and that's sort of the way i would have viewed it i went in there i didn't even really think about that type of thing. But, um, yeah, I copped it pretty hard, mm. uh, especially on the back of if there was any sort of poor performance. Um, and I think more so it was the media. The, the media were really harsh. And I'd come from media here in Australia and, and one thing I, I always remember and something I always appreciated about, I guess, from my level, the club rugby I was playing was if you had a good game, club rugby level, it was always back then there was, it was good coverage, you know. On the Sunday there'd be a, a full page or two pages on club rugby and it was, it was great. And they would celebrate victories or they'd celebrate players. If you had a poor game, you just weren't mentioned. It was as simple as that. They wouldn't say, oh, this guy had an absolute shocker. They would just rather say, Christy Durham, what a fantastic performance that was. They would blow you, they'd blow your tyres up and if you didn't play well, then, you know, you weren't mentioned. I'm sure you're going to get, you know, crucified by your coaches, but it wasn't mentioned in the public light. And then I went to Scotland and it was almost the reverse. It was a very negative mindset around their rugby. And to me, that wasn't very fun. I didn't enjoy that because I didn't know that was going to be the case because I'd just been experienced to positive energy within the media. Now, that may have changed over the years, I'm sure. You're probably going to say that. But (laughs) to my knowledge, back then, that's how it was. Went to Scotland and, yeah, copped it. And it wasn't – again, I didn't really read a lot of press because I learnt pretty quickly I probably shouldn't. (laughs) But it was my partner at the time. She really struggled with that. And um, because, you know, she was working and she was going on the the metro into work and she was reading the paper and, you know, it was quite scathing at times around Scotland – um, Glasgow was great. The Glasgow press was fantastic. It was the Scottish stuff that was really, really tough. And did you have a strategy around that then in terms of like, did you actually sit down and, and think about or media management? Did you go on a charm offensive? Did you try and get to know some of the, the journos or did you think, oh, I'm just going to do my thing? You know what? It wasn't even a case of that. Like, and still to this day, I have relationships with those blokes who were, you know, saying those things or writing those things. But it, that was just the way they reported. And I, you know, Australia were out here recently, what, was it two years ago? Or Scotland a couple of years ago. Yeah, a couple of years ago yeah, yeah, when they had the remarkable victory at Sydney, the old Sydney Football Stadium. Mm. Um, and I caught up with a few of the journalists then and, you know, it was like they were old mates of mine and we were just chatting away and, and they still say it to this day, Dan, we just, we have to report how we see things and that's just our way. And I don't, I don't carry any grudges against it. It was just, it was a real transition getting used to that because then... You know, like there were some, obviously some dark days in my early days in Scotland and then, you know, as time went on, I think they began to, I guess, appreciate me a bit more and, and understand that I was actually there to do my very best I could in any situation in life. And um, and I think they, they got that as time went on, they more and more appreciated what I was trying to do and um, especially, you know, 2009, 10, 11, um, you know, we had some great years with Scotland. Whilst I was just on this subject, clearly you qualified because you had ancestry in Scotland, but clearly it's a big topic at the moment, three to five years now, the eligibility. Yep. What, do you, what do you just think about players from particularly the Pacific Islands, you know, they're 
playing for every other nation that they get picked up from for domestic clubs and then qualifying three or five years later down the track? Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I know Scotland have done it as well. There's quite a few, or WP Nell uh, up front. There's a few other examples. Senna, Hugh Jones. Hugh Jones, yeah. And as I said, there is quite a few different examples. Now, I'm probably not one really to comment too harshly on this, but, um, you know, the way I looked at it, obviously I – it's a funny one for me because when I first went over to Scotland, I never even anticipated playing Test Rugby. I went there to be a professional with Glasgow Rugby because uh, for all those years trying in Sydney, I was never given an opportunity and that really frustrated me and I really wanted to go somewhere and be able to be a professional. Um, I'll still never forget the first day I got to Glasgow. They were doing uh, strength testing and and I'm not the strongest guy in the world, and they said, right, we'll warm up on 80 kilograms um, and then we'll do a 100-kilogram bench press test, as many as you can do. I couldn't lift 80 kilograms. So we've got a room full of these rugby boys. There must be 35 in this room and everyone's doing this test. And I looked at the bar and, again, because I hadn't really done any weights, nothing, rolled up there as a 25-year-old bloke and I couldn't lift 80 kilograms. So when I eventually retired, I was lifting 120 as benching, but because I hadn't been exposed to anything professional, anything along those lines, um, yeah, I just found it quite remarkable. It makes sense now why Eddie Jones all those years ago absolutely ripped me apart in a one-on-one meeting we had. Um, There was potential back in 01 when I was having a great season with Southern Districts. Uh, He wanted to have a meeting. We had a meeting at um, Coogee, uh, the hotel there up the road from Coogee Bay and yeah, I thought I was going there because he was going to potentially give me an opportunity at Brumbies. It was almost like he set up the meeting just to <laughs> rip into me and tell me how poor I was defensively. It was unbelievable. And I remember walking out of there going, what? what? I don't understand why he just did that because all he was – he was just mean. Uh, but anyway, and but that makes sense now when I went to that session in 03 and, yeah, I couldn't even lift 80 well, kg. I, I think you can Hope it didn't make you pay for lunch as well. Yeah, no, I think we didn't even get through a coffee. It was that quick. And just ripped into you. I, think, my I think you can take heart in knowing that you're not the only one that he's <laughs> ever gone through in a in a one-on-one situation. Yes, I, I catch up with Matt Dunning through through business quite, every, uh, quite often every now and then. We had a game of golf about a year back and – Matty tells some great stories and, yeah, just about how he used to be literally crucified in front of everyone or just one-on-one, but it wouldn't matter. But, yeah, yeah. he was he, uh, he's pretty tough. He must have been doing something right to get on his radar at least. Well, uh, I, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, it was, we were having a good year at South and, yeah. uh, and again, we didn't defend much, but we were scoring a lot of points. So, <laughs> yeah, he was more looking at the other side of it though. Yeah. And Scotland rugby, since you've come back to Australia, continues to go to strength to strength. Obviously, talking before that they've had some real injury problems in the Six Nations this year, but you must be delighted that... Uh, yeah, what you were such a big part of for all those years is, is continuing to, to, to flourish over there. Yeah, it's it's been great. Uh, I think over the last, well, realistically, I guess seven to eight years, they've really stepped up again. And they've, in my eyes, they seem to be getting better and better each year. Now, it's a tough one this year because everyone's going to judge them on what they're, where they're sitting. They're one and four in the Six Nations this year, but they have had a lot of injuries and it's really cost them. Um, but, yeah, I guess where they are at the moment, uh, it doesn't look great. But, yeah, there's been great signs of improvement the whole way through. Vern Cotter got involved on a coaching aspect a couple of years ago, passed on the reins over to Gregor Townsend. And, you know, any players I speak to, any staff I speak to associated, all they talk mm. about is is how, I guess, how great things are, how positive they are. Um, 
certainly Gregor from the you know from my understanding of Gregor, what I worked with him for a couple of years, his work ethic is very very high, and he demands a lot of his players, um, and his players certainly respect him for that. We are going to talk some Six Nations in, in just a moment. Interested to get your thoughts on Scott Johnson as well, who's coming back uh, into rugby Australia uh, in in the coaching ranks or director of coaching. Um, but first, you've been doing some commentary and I think you commentated both games for rugby.com.au, both Super Rugby games on the weekend, so a couple of local derbies. So I really want to get your thoughts on uh, where the Australian sides are at at the moment. Friday night, first up, what did you make of the Rebels and the Brumbies? Uh, fascinating game, to be honest. I was, I went in there with, I sort of had a look at both teams and I think we'd all probably agree that the Rebels were the favoured team to come out victors. Uh, I sort of, the only area you could probably say, again, on paper for me, was that the Brumbies had them, would have been up front. Mm. And that certainly seemed to be the case. If you, you know, went into half time at 19-3, I think everyone was a bit surprised at that. I certainly was. I didn't expect they would have that, I guess, that dominance, which certainly proved to be the case in the last 10 minutes of the first half. Um, but they certainly were. And, uh, you know, I said to Gordon, I was doing it with Gordon Bray, and I said, it's going to be a, a real hill for the Rebels to, to get out of this one, to climb up. And sure enough, they did. Um, but it's incredible how games can turn. That game literally changed at that kickoff from Quade Cooper. Yeah. The drop off the kickoff at Sam the back. Sam Carter. Sam Carter dropping that ball. Jack Maddox coming through. Uh, I think Luke Jones had just come on the field. He receives the offload. And the ga- whole game changed in that instant. And that's what I talk about. Momentum in rugby is absolutely huge. It could be a referee's call. It could be a knock-on here or there. Or in that case, it was the kickoff. Yep. And I think that's an area – I know in certainly over in the UK, it's an area that I learn a lot about as time went on. They used to go on all the, all the time about kickoffs because it's another opportunity to get the ball back. I don't think – I know we try here with the Waratahs with the Israel Folau influence of getting the ball back, but that would be one area I'd really like to hone in on it because if you kick off, it's – realistically, it's a 50-50 ball – Every ground we're kicking on should be good enough for the for the tens to be able to get a bounce on that ball off the kickoff. I don't think we use that that area of the game enough. We saw actually on numerous occasions over the weekend um, uh, sevens Australia up against New Zealand. They missed three or four kickoffs um, in, in Canada and the Vancouver sevens, and that just destroyed their efforts. But we, you only have to look at the Bledisloe at Dunedin a couple of years mm-hmm. ago where. Kieran Reid gets a little touch on and Isaac Rodder misses the ball and, that, and they end up losing that Bledisloe because they couldn't get the ball off the kick restart. So, Oof. yeah. Well, last yeah, year, well, it, was, it, Israel Folau was call. getting... Uh, dodgy call, yeah. <laughs> Israel Folau was getting used specifically as a weapon for that purpose at times yeah. last year, wasn't he? And then the controversy against Ireland, they might have eased off um, from that approach. But yeah. yeah, it was a, a classic game of two halves, wasn't it? The old the old cliche and then Will Guinea, of course, getting all the all the headlines. But the, the Rebels pack may be a bit underrated as well, do you think? I, well, I think what happened was, again... What I really liked, and at the time I, I, I sort of picked up on it pre-game about the 6-2 bench, um, and I can't see why more teams aren't doing that. I, I really – because we'll, well go on to the – It helps war- when you've got Reese Hodge coming off the bench. You can cover about 1,000. Well, well, that's very true. But then I, got, I look at the Waratahs. Why are the Waratahs playing 5-3 when uh, Mitch Short and Mac Mason have not played one minute? Mm. Tell me. Well, I don't get it. Because you've got Kirtley Beal who can feel in any position, mm. in particular 10. Foley never gets taken off the park. I don't get it. Is, you know, I just think I'd rather be carrying an extra forward, especially with the game is played. It's tough, it's physical, it's bruising. Um, to me, I just think that's a uh, would be a smart option. Don't the coaches, aren't they hoping and being optimistic and thinking, oh, well, if our team is up, then we'll give Mac Mason 25 minutes at yeah. the back end. But my and point is, but if, you, if he's in your team, surely you, sh- you can trust him. 
So if that is the case, it's a tight game, we can bring him on. Yeah. I know yeah. he's going to get us through the last 15 minutes, if, if that's what you want to do. Now, if you, it's only for a, um, for example, an injury reason, then I don't really – because I don't remember the last time Foley got injured. And, and that's credit to him, obviously, and I'm sure his staff who look after him and all the rest of it. But I just think that, you know, and that, I take back to that point about the Rebels. To me, they had the 6-2 bench. They got over the top of them. They powered over the top of them. Alan Alatoa, when he was taken off, the game seemed to change again. Uh, the momentum all got through the Rebels and they started. Quade Cooper, I can't believe how flat he's standing mm. uh, all season. It's so good to see. He's obviously extremely comfortable playing outside Will Genia. He's got a, a really young, positive back line. Um, in the first half, they didn't see it because they were dominated and they were deprived of the ball. And Will, you could see the frustration in him at the back of his malls, his lineouts, uh, his, uh, you know, his rucks, and he was he was getting annoyed with his team because yeah. they weren't getting him in the ball. And that's what flicked his switch, I think. That, that yeah. really there was there was one moment there in that first half. Exactly that happened, and he really had the irrits. About th- yeah, a couple and, minutes before and from then on, he was it was like, okay, well, I'm just going to do this myself. I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to do all these things that I know will inspire my team. And and they did, yeah. yeah and they uh, yeah covered it off well in the Super Rugby rap last night. Um, the the best he's run in, in a long time, and that is uh, was always his great strength, wasn't it? Uh, engaging the defence and, and and yeah, just just a real follow me attitude. But interested to get your thoughts as well, um, Dan, on on the importance of the halfback in relation to a five eighth, and and I know specifically France and South Africa over the years they play a lot off nine, and we're starting to see that um, coming more in the Southern Hemisphere, I think. Uh, but guys like TJ Perinara and we saw Garrett Guinea um, on the weekend um, and, and allowing the 5'8 to, to sit back at times. Um, how have you assessed that, I guess, the style of, of play around the rugby world recently? There's something I, I guess I haven't really sat back and, I guess, assessed or really looked at that closely. I, You know, on Will Guinea's game on the weekend, I think we all saw how impressive it was in that second half. Um, I've still got... A, through my coaching with the country Eagles, I've got a good relationship with Jake Gordon and I spoke with Jake on the Saturday morning just about that very thing. I said, is it something you'd be looking at doing and getting yourself more involved in the game? Because I think we've seen he's very much distributing. I don't know if that's part of the plan or whatever it is, but that was certainly something we'd spoken about, about seeing him get out and just – because that's – I don't know if you guys are aware of his Sydney University um, days, but he is yeah, he's a try-scoring machine oh, at yeah. Sydney University level and we just don't see that element. I'd love to see him have that freedom around the edges, which Will Genny obviously has. I, I wrote on that actually just yesterday that we saw one moment in the second half with about 12 minutes to go when, when Gordon popped out at, at uh, scrum half. He took, took a step. He sucked yep. in the defender who I think was uh, Ruan Smith and then put Newsom in a gap. Like That's what Genny was doing on Friday night and the first time that that uh, Gordon does that, it, it does end up in a try. But then again, on that, you've got to – got to give Newsom credit for that. So he, he was on the field. It's his first touch of the ball, I think. Uh, and they even panned uh, – Fox Sports panned to the bench. Uh, and uh, what's his name? The winger. Uh, Kurt Rona hadn't even had time to sit down. That's how quickly mm. Newsom had found himself in, involved in the action. Mm. And now that would just be a communication thing. And that's what I was hoping to see from, from Israel on the, on the weekend, just to get himself – first receiver or running inside lines, whatever it may be, but just getting – because he, he gets the ball – if he should is getting the ball ten times a half, the Waratahs, Wallabies, are going to be such a more dangerous team. We keep hearing that, that Izzy much prefers – his preferred position is fullback. When he goes to the wing, do you think that he's not getting involved as much as he should? Should he be looking for more work on the wing? Do you think he's maybe just sitting back and potentially not that happy about being there? And I, I know – 
you know, the the Tars always say, well, he's a team man, he's happy to play wherever we put him. And well, he, he says, says the same that himself. Thing. Yeah. But I just wonder whether there's a almost like the, the hunger isn't quite as there, are, there as much. There are games where we've seen that on the wing. We yeah. saw it last year and, and I think his first game that he got switched to the wing, he played really well for the Wallabies last Against year. Against Argentina. Had, had, a, had a blinder, was used a lot in the air and then I think it was the next game where he just didn't seem interested. Yeah, so the, there there is an interesting uh, mentality there and uh, yeah, there, there could well be something to that. Well, I think just on that, um, again, for me when I play, there's different types of wingers. There's wingers that will stay in their position as in, you know, I guess the... The stock standard stay outside on you. If you're a left wing, you stay on your edge and you wait for the ball to come to you. And there's other wingers who like to go looking. Now, I don't see Israel as that player who would like, for example, there's a left side right on the edge of the pitch and they're moving, you know, through their forwards to the to the right side of the pitch. Him just roaming in and around the 10 or just off the nine, as Newsom said, uh, Newsom did. We need, I'd like to see our wingers have that role. But I don't think, because I'm thinking now, Nayavoro, Mm. Didn't see him do that for the uh, no. Waratahs no. last year either. Maybe it's it's within the Waratahs' plans not to play it the way they they keep their wit. Hold the whistle. Yeah, exactly. They just go side to side all the time. But that's my point. And I'd like to <laughs> see if there's, I don't know, for example, someone like him, he needs to be in the game. Nyavoro, when he was in the game, absolutely destructive. Like he would just run through people, give him the ball, first receiver. I'm telling you now, if I'm standing opposite him, I don't want to see that. And I don't think we see enough of those big guys getting in in those positions and just taking them on. We see a lot of the forwards doing that, mm. but we know it's coming. It's just a forward hit-up. He's literally, it's a sacrifice tackle. Mm. So he's sacrificing a hit to set up the next phase, whereas I just think there might be a little way, especially with a Falau or the, you know, the, some of those bigger wingers, rather than sitting out on their edges, to get yourself involved in the game a little bit more. Someone else can fill that slot. Yeah. On a related note, I think we are seeing some good signs with um, Australian players playing that more unstructured heads up rugby and just in seeing opportunities in front of them and going, which was has been a real issue over the last couple of years. I think we saw Samu Karevi just the ball was there, grab it and go go up the guts. We've seen that with Taniela Tupo and um, we saw that with well, even Bill scoring. On well, the, Guinea yeah. guys like a lot of the. Kiwi halfbacks or whatever will take those quick taps and just go. We're starting to see that uh, more, I think, in the Australian game, which is, is a, a positive sign. Absolutely. Who, who's your test 5 at the moment? If you had to pick a team they were playing tomorrow, who's who's wearing 10 for the Wallabies? Well, it would be Bernard Foley. There's no question I would still pick Bernard. I think he's proven at that level. Obviously, I don't know how many caps Bernard's got now, but he's certainly... He's um, broken Scottish hearts. Well, he has many times. I don't think he's... Yeah, he hasn't failed against Scotland, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, I would certainly pick Foley at this stage. I'm really enjoying watching... What Quaid, uh, well, sorry, what Quaid is doing with the his his depth alignment, but I think as we all know, once teams figure out how they can stop that full momentum, like the Brumbies did in the first half, mm-hmm. their their game is non-existent. They scored three points. Now, you know, I sort of look at this in a different way. I, I, we can go back the very first play of the game. Uh, the Rebels have a shot in uh, goal, 30 metres out, directly in front, and they go to the corner and they lose the line out. Now, that's, again, we're talking about momentum. That's complete momentum shift. I was really surprised they didn't take the three points there. Just to build just to build that score line and, you know, get on top. If I'm the Brumbies, I'm thinking, how dare you? Mm. How dare you have a shot to the corner when you've got a clear three points? And I don't know if that happened, but the Brumbies' psyche would be, well, let's stuff these blokes. Let's get stuck into them. Yep. This is disrespect. It's well, happening so much in Super Rugby now, though. Isn't it the, the the tendency to kick for the corner? And it's, it's don't get me wrong, it's it's great. Yeah. But I just think that stage in the game, it's I'm, you know every team I'm I'm sure is the same. I would much prefer to be on three points than zero, especially at the start of the game. You're feeling good about yourself, like yeah. the Waratahs. Well, they won the game on yeah. the weekend because they built the scoreboard. Yeah. Michael Hooper two penalties inside twenty minutes and to to Foley and yeah, interesting point. But what why why Foley? Because all the headlines have been Quaid so far and and. 
some of the cutout balls that he was producing on the weekend, which yep. is, and, he, and he has been doing for the three or four weeks, has been brilliant. So why, why Bernard? I just think, again, he's proven uh, – Quaid's been out of the game, obviously, that level for a long time. And I just like the way Bernard plays. I don't see that he deserves not to be in the team. I know he's had a slow start to the season. I think the weekend was better. Um, and, again, I, that's my concern with, obviously, the way Quaid is playing so flat on the line, which I love. It's fantastic because he's getting away with it because of when the Rebels are looking good, they're getting that front football. Mm. We mentioned about Genia. He's getting out and creating. They've got to be a little bit tighter. They've got to hold their line until those passes go to Quaid. And with his depth, it's, it's creating space. But I would just give it a... Certainly, I would be starting with Foley. And then if the ball keeps rolling for the Rebels and they're playing with that confidence, then that might sway into him in the test arena, but not for now. It's great that there is that competition and that debate for too long. There just hasn't been enough of that. And that's what Checker tried to create last year by by dropping Foley and giving Beal some time there. It uh, didn't work. But, uh, yeah, there, there needs to be those debates and, and different options available to the to the coaching staff. Also interested to get your thoughts on what's happening at the Reds with their 5-8. That's, they've obviously let Quaid go and now that's a, a bit of a headache for them. Hamish Stewart um, dropped to the bench and Bryce Higgerty given a go. How, how did you see, how have you seen Hamish um, over the last uh, couple of seasons and um, you know is Bryce now the best option do you think for the Reds? Yeah I'm a fan of Hamish Stewart. I, I remember watching him about oh, a couple of years back when he was playing in the 20s um, and to be honest, I didn't – I think it was a game against Scotland I was actually watching. I didn't really have a gr- like a massive opinion of, of anyone, to be honest. I was just watching the game. Didn't really know too much about the guys. Seen a bit of Hamish last year with Queensland Country um, or the year before. And then obviously now he's gone into the Reds. And, and I actually like him. I think he's a good player. He's tough. Um, and he, I think he goes pretty well. I thought found it very interesting on the weekend that, that obviously Hegarty was there. And, you know, the Reds had an abundance of ball. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they had 66% of possession. It's pretty much a flip to what usually happens. The Reds are a great defensive uh, team, don't really hold much ball, but they seem to have a lot of ball on the weekend. And obviously they got over for three tries, but I thought they might have potentially got Stewart on earlier. I don't think Hegarty was creating a great deal. I think he did some good things the week before, but it's a bit of a dilemma there because you've got obviously two blokes that obviously Thorne wants to create some pressure within each other and I, I think it, it potentially could work. This week is going to be an interesting one against the Sunwolves because they'd look at that. Oh, I covered the game last year when the Sunwolves absolutely destroyed <laughs> them over there. I'd like to think that Queensland will be looking at this game. They've had three, on paper, tough games. Um, and defensively, overall, hasn't been too bad. If you look at the Crusaders, I think they only scored 22 points. Yep. They, you know, the game in, uh, in Dunedin, I think they got away. It was 36 in the end. But they scored points themselves and stayed within. And the Waratahs, I think that was only two tries on the weekend. Was it three in three, the end? Three each, yeah. But, but again, it's not too bad. They've just got to start scoring points. Mm. Stewart looks like a very structured player that's not going to do anything too extravagant. Hegarty will put, maybe pose a few more questions running to the line or kicks behind that we saw with the Naivalu trial on the weekend. When you're going to Tokyo to play the Sunwolves, who are a pretty open team that throw the ball around and it's generally high-scoring affairs, do you want – how do the Reds approach this? Do they go, we're going to – back our forwards and maybe just try to grind out a win or do they go and maybe bring Stuart back in at 10 or do they go, okay, well, we've got to start scoring some points? Yeah, it's an interesting question that because, again, again, we're talking about the commentary. They're the favourite team I like to watch. They're the best team to call because they do – the Sun Wolves? Yes, they do incredible things at different times when you don't see it coming. uh, I I remember last year, I think it was uh, Little made an obscene break against the Waratahs and he ran literally 95 metres – 
90 odd metres and he threw it a six-metre forward pass, which was let go over the try line to one of his players and they scored. It was but <laughs> just completely out of control what they can do at different times. Well, he was their best player last year. He, he was unbelievable. Yeah, and he started this year off the bench, I think, in the very first mm. game. So, again, he's he was captain on the weekend. Yep. Um, but, yeah, I, I would – me personally, I would probably start with the Hamish Stewart um, and I'd look to probably bring Bryce Hegarty on. So the same idea what we said earlier on about the Waratahs. So if they've got someone on the bench, like we talk about Mac Mason, let's trust – who we've got there. I, I, that's why I'm getting confused because on the weekend, Stewart didn't get on. No. He sat on the bench the whole game. Again, my, my point is, I think they were down by 11 points. Mm. Why not? Let's the, change it up. The other player that, that has become part of that conversation off the back of one performance Isaac. is Isaac Lucas because he was essentially playing out of position at, at fullbacks, played most of his um, schoolboy career at, uh, at 10, and he is now being mentioned as a potential uh, fly half for the Reds. I mean, you know, very early on in a career, but I think that shows the strength of his performance at, at uh, 15 on the weekend. I was, uh, I had no idea about him. Un, um, um, only the comments that were made by my co-commentator about him leading into the game and the family history. And I was so impressed. Mm. So we'll talk about defence to start with. Uh, the, the rundown on Jake Gordon. Jake's away, Jake's fast. And we mentioned he's a try scorer. Right, he would have been seeing that line, this is me, I'm scoring for sure. And somehow, Lucas came from nowhere and grasped him. Yeah. You know, it saved a certain try. Came from behind. Yeah, and then five minutes later, again, Falau, you know, Falau in the clear like that, generally against fullbacks of any nature, he generally beats him, especially Lucas is small in stature. Boom, straight down, it was fantastic. Mm. Great to see. And then, ball in hand, he created some real opportunity. That first 40 minutes, again, I look at those as a lot of, it's the element of surprise. So the Waratahs may not have known too much about him, especially in attack, and he created some really uncomfortable well, he, moments. He helped set up that try for Chris Fowler-Sartour by, by drawing in Rona and then passing to Karevi, who then in turn gets it out wide and, and he runs down the touchline. But it was it was early, the earlier break. I think there was a kick through. Put, I can't remember who it was, maybe Foley. He sort of ducked underneath someone and then scrambled his way upfield. He made a good 30 metres. And for a bloke on, you know, I guess on Dubu, in that position, as you said, it was... I thought it was very impressive. Uh, the second half obviously completely changed for him. He's, he's not the biggest guy in the world, and he's obviously, I'm sure it's something they'll have to look at. He's got to get stronger because I think the very first carry he did, he sort of got carried okay, made a bit of ground, but then they got him on the ground and they literally turned him over. Referee gave a penalty for not releasing. So, a couple of comparisons with McKenzie, Damien McKenzie, early on. Yeah, well, I would he, agree. Well, he actually said, um, I think it was yesterday. Yeah, um, he did some media and he said that Damien McKenzie's been his inspiration because he's about the only guy who's not wearing nine on his back, who's as small as he is in in the competition. And Great. we've seen what McKenzie's done over the years. Yeah. He's he's a phenomenal player. Great to see the little guys uh, thriving. And while, while most of the attention here is going to be on Tars Brumbies, the big derby this week, this this Red Sunwolves game is pretty big. I think a big test for for Brad Thorne's uh, fledgling coaching career because they're in a, a real hole at zero and three, and the Sunwolves are actually favourites for this game. They've played some some good rugby and uh, just such a shame that they've lost Jordan Patea. Um, the, the scrum hasn't quite fired. The set piece hasn't quite fired as much as uh, I think Thorne would have would have hoped. Um, if they lose this, there's going to be some real heat going on at, at Ballymore, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. I, they probably would have liked to have eked out one of those one win in those first three that games. Highlands but it one. has been yeah. a tough start to the season. But yeah. but but really, it's you know they they can probably accept. Uh, well, they probably would have accepted three se- uh, pre-season that losing all of those. They could understand how that might happen, but they cannot understand. They would not be able to cop losing to the Sunwolves. That's uh, that's pretty dire. They certainly need to be better than what they were last year yeah. when they went across there. That was they got completely played off the park, and 
Some was racked up a lot of points. If Six I remember correctly, that was the day that uh, Hayden Parker yeah. kicked 13 of 13 or 12 of 12 yeah. with a penalty try. He is a freak. He he, he still hasn't missed, yeah. I believe, this year. Yeah. So uh, The just, only one he's missed, I think, was goal. that attempted drop goal, yeah, against the... Come against of course. The yes. um, all right, so, so we might park uh, some Super Rugby there and talk about Six Nations. Um, that looks like it's coming down to the wire again. Now, if Wales beat Ireland, then they'll complete the Grand Slam, win the Six Nations. Uh, but if Wales lose and England beat Scotland at Twickenham, um, England wins the Six Nations. Scotland haven't beaten England at Twickenham in 36 years. Yeah, what was it? Was it last year or the year before that England put 50 on Scotland when Scotland went in there from their yes. best, best year yet so far in Six Nations, or in some time rather? Yeah, I think they came third a couple of years ago and they would have went in there feeling pretty confident that day. I think, if I remember correctly, there was a couple of yellow cards which went against Scotland early in the game. I think... Um, Richie or Johnny Gray got carded early in the game. And again, momentum, it sort of completely changed momentum. I think England scored three tries in that period. And the game was sort of taken away. And then obviously it just got a bit out of control, similar to what... And that's what England can do. Mm. They did that to Italy on the week, weekend to score and they racked up 57 points. Um, so this is one of those games. Certainly England-Scotland this weekend, it's a tough place to play because we've heard Eddie Jones this week. I think he got... Um, Scotland won last year up at Murrayfield and... Eddie got a bit of a hard time at Manchester. Uh, the day after the train yeah, station. At the train station, yeah, he got a bit of a hard time. And That's right. He still, he brought it up the other day. It was something brought up. He had a press conference and he brought it up and was talking about how Scotland live, you know, for this for this weekend. And he even made mention of something that happened last year. And obviously we're all, it was well documented. The carry on. Well, there was, you know, there was, it was an idiot, some Scottish fan who, who did something really dumb. But he just said, said something to Eddie when he shouldn't have. And, and obviously Eddie hasn't forgotten that. And... You'd have plenty of sympathy for him after your nice catch-up. <laughs> well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I know that, you know, Eddie would want to be, uh, I guess, gaining some sort of revenge, and so would England. Like, they got they got touched up last year from Scotland, and uh, Hugh Jones was the main man last year when the Scotland-England uh, up in Edinburgh. He absolutely dominated that game. Yeah. Finn Russell threw some incredible passes. They were calling that the ball, like, one of the, oh, the passes of the century, though. Yeah. Like, but again, I love these passes of the century, call because say you got... One of the centres, slightly switched on a little bit more, looks up a quarter of a second earlier on, he plucks that. Yeah. It's a different story. He scores under the post that end, whereas it went to hand. There's two centres weren't even looking and it went straight over the heads and boom, away we go. And and that's sort of, I guess, you know, that can happen in games. But uh, it's going to be a tough ask for Scotland this week uh, without Stuart Hogg again. I think if you look at Scotland's uh, – Stuart Hogg's played, I think it's, it's something ridiculous, 40-odd games in a row up until this Six Nations. He got injured after the first game. Um, where they won, they beat Italy and they were in a very comfortable position. Italy scored a couple of late tries, but they were never in doubt. The hope then and the expectation for Scotland going forward was huge. Um, and they played Ireland the next game and obviously they went down narrowly um, and sort of from there it's sort of fallen by the wayside. But, uh, yeah, I think blokes like Stuart Hogg, who's unavailable again through injury, um, you know, he's been certainly missed. Finn Russell missed the middle game against against France. Ironically, he had to play for his club team, Racing Metro, the week leading into the France game where he got a concussion, which Ugh. he wasn't allowed to play against France. So it's one of those years that it sort of hasn't worked out. But um, I certainly think England are in a very commanding position to take that game. Um, and the Wales, but it's all about the Wales Island game. That's a, the the, the um, destiny is in is in Wales hands, really, isn't? It, if they beat Ireland, I've, yeah. got a, I've got a bad feeling about Wales. What do you guys think? I just think the Irish might might get them with the occasion get to the, the Welsh. So no, I, uh, Wales have been so good so far. We're, Everyone kind of un- keeps underestimating them, don't they? They just yeah. keep, they just keep winning. Yeah, 
I think I've noticed over the last couple of years, and I guess I think it's 13 they've won in a row now, which, which is their I th- record. I think it is it's their record. record. Yep. I think it's at the moment. I think it's the longest streak. Certainly more than New Zealand. I think at the moment they lost last year. Yeah, currently. Current yeah. um, and what I've noticed, what they've done, Warren Gatlin and his staff, really, really well, is they've blooded a lot of players who I'd never even heard of. Um, you know, 18, 18 months, 12 to 18 months ago. And now these guys are getting regular time off the bench or either starting when blokes are injured, whatever it may be. And that's the thing they're driving. Who would have thought Wales would be competitive without Lee Halfpenny? Mm. Because that's the big thing. You know, he, he's been so successful, not just as a player, but with his boot, the points he scored, he has kept them in the games. But now Gareth Anscombe, he's obviously been there. I think it's about four or five years now. Uh, coming over from the Auckland Blues Since or the, the Chiefs. World Cup. Yeah, but he's yeah. been he's been fantastic. It, and he's just grown and grown and grown. It's a real discussion point Wales is having, similar to a lot of nations, but who their premier fly half is because Dan Bigger's been coming off the bench and Anscombe's been starting and, and doing well, clearly started it's against working. England. Well, it's working and I think that's the key. They're winning. There's no point changing a winning formula. Dan Bigger seems to be doing some good things when he's coming off the bench. Um, Anscombe's been, been going great comes, uh, as a starter. I think overall... Um, what you find, it's like I'm sure we all recognise this, when you do start winning, you it becomes really hard to lose, uh, strangely enough, because they're getting themselves in position. Scotland had many chances in that second half, but Wales kept finding a way to repel them or Scotland kept finding a way to, I guess, beat themselves. But that's what happens when you're winning. And Gatland even made reference to that after the game. Don't know how we managed that, but we're just so used to winning that we are. One of the great things about the Six Nations, of course, is the atmosphere and these amazing traditional venues, all the history that goes with it. What was it like as a Sydney boy going from suburban club rugby grounds to all of a sudden, you, it happened pretty fast, like you said, playing in some of the great cathedrals of, of the game, especially as a goal kicker, um, must have been quite an experience. Yeah, well... Daunting? Daunting, yeah, that would be one word. Well, ironically enough, the, the game we're talking about is in where I got my first cap at the Millennium Stadium in 04. And my memory... A very fond memory of that game was it was obviously quite wet, so they uh, closed the roof. They closed the roof the morning of the game. And uh, we turned up there in the morning and the pitch was really dry. And then, uh, you know, whatever it was, five hours later when we got to the ground, it was completely soaked. But the roof was closed and I just couldn't fathom it. But they water the pitches. So it's a bit like soccer. They keep the pitches all, you know, moist and all the rest of it. But that's how it was. It was a really – and I was completely surprised because I was excited about the fact, oh, perfect, the roof's closed, start. it's going to be beautiful <laughs> and dry. <Wrong> studs. <laughs> Not the case. Um, but we came – as we ran on, obviously the warm-up happened and everything else and you could see the crowd building and the expectation when it was the first game of the Six Nations. And anyway, we've run out the pitch, uh, Scotland come out and we uh, Chris Patterson was our captain. Now, Chris is a reasonably lightly light speaker. He's not the, you know, he doesn't speak that loud, I guess. And he, anyway, so he's got us in a huddle and he's talking or screaming. And then whales started coming out and you could, you could, I don't think you could hear anyone, the noise they made. Roof's closed. It was deafening. It was unbelievable. The whole crowd sung Flower of Scotland, the whole crowd. And then it ramped up a gear again when they <laughs> sung Bread of Heaven straight after. It was just, for me... I still think about it now because I, I get goosebumps because it was just something I'd never experienced. I've obviously been to a lot of Australian rugby games, but that was just – it was insane. And there was different times in the game where I remember Yeston Harris uh, carried just after I got on um, and he got absolutely crunched by Jason White. It was like his body sort of sort of dissolved within <laughs> Jason's shoulders. And then – but this was my this was my experience of super, uh, of international rugby because as soon as he got hit, I thought, he's out. He's not getting up. He got instantly up. It was like it was just another tackle. But it, for me, that was a sign of international rugby is different. It's just a different level to obviously your club, into your state, into 
uh, into the international arena because it was quite incredible. Was the Millennium the the top venue you played at? Or? Um, again, Millennium I loved, uh, but my favourite stadium was the Stade Stade de France in Paris. Uh, I just oh. found it just a just the whole experience. You you go in, you walk through a beautiful tunnel into the huge change rooms. Um, and then you walk out onto again similar. So the tunnel's really long, and it's it's real, not really long, but it's very wide. And you beautiful stadium. You just look out onto every. I imagine everywhere you sit in that stadium has a great vantage point of the game. Um, and I just yeah, I just I feel a real sense of warmth there. I played a World Cup quarter final there in two thousand and seven. Although we lost to Argentina, it was still a real magic moment. That was a real special period in my my rugby career two thousand seven. So by the time. Uh the World Cup comes around later this year and, and obviously this is a, a great period where we start to get a handle on, on the Northern Hemisphere nations and how they're travelling. But by the time uh, Japan kicks off, uh, Scott Johnson will be back as Rugby Australia's new director of, of rugby. Can you um, well, just explain to us your dealings with Scott Johnson but, but more the impression that he's left on, on Scottish rugby? Yeah, uh, so Scott, I never really... I've probably known, obviously known of Scott Johnson for a, a long period of time and for that whole period, 2003 all the way through until I well, pretty much retired in 2014, I think I'd probably had two conversations with him. Now, we'd play against each other. I think when I first got there, he was involved with Wales rugby and then he went to Ospreys soon after that. Um, so I'd played, I'd say over the years, probably at least 20, 25 games against him at, at international and club level and there was not one word spoken between us. I think there might have been a, um, an acknowledgement uh, across sort of the park when he might have been running on with the water because he always used to run the tea on and those, those sorts of things. Um, but there wasn't much dialogue going on. And then Scott, the first, I guess, conversation, he rung me uh, when I was I was in Cardiff playing uh, my two seasons. There. It was just before I left Cardiff, Cardiff to go to Connacht. Uh, April 2012, he gave me a ring and he said, Dan, um, mate, can we meet up for a chat? And he just signed with Scottish Rugby and I, he was obviously going to start his tenure there. I think it was July that year. Um and anyway, that was the first I'd really spoken to him and we had a great yard and a nice coffee shop there in Pontcarna in, in Cardiff and um, yeah, he just wanted to know a bit about some of the Scottish players, uh, some of the players ending their careers, what they potentially could be like as coaches and, and so on and so forth and I hadn't really had much to do with him and then I sort of from there, whenever I was at a Scotland game, I, I, I think I saw him maybe once or twice after that and would always try and have a, a general conversation with him and just about how Scotland rugby's going and, and bits and pieces. Is it unusual for a coach not to necessarily say g'day and chew the fat with someone they don't necessarily know but or may know of? Well, I think more so just because we are both born in Australia. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, you know, I know for all the years I was there, you know, I was I would always try and talk to different people that might have an association to, to, to myself or somewhere I was from or whatever it may be. And I think that's just – you just generally do that. Yeah. You see – you always see it at times, you know, in – it doesn't matter what code, rugby league, rugby union, you see blokes that you see them after games and they're standing there talking you think, okay, that makes sense because they played there together or, oh, okay, well, they've obviously been at that, they played international level, whatever it may be. You just tend to see that and I just I just guess over the years that we might have had more to do with each other but but we didn't. Um, but one of the things I, I did admire about Scott was one of the things he said to me was uh, how Scotland were perceived over all the years. So whenever he was against a Scottish team or a, um, uh, at, at an international level or club level, he, was, he made the point that teams don't respect Scotland. So this is before he got involved and he, he was very clear about that message and he got that message to the players and all the staff. It was, it was 
it was all in. You mean when, when he went to Scott? So when he yeah. started, yeah, he made that point very clear, guys. You need to get respect with with fellow competitors, fellow countries, because they don't respect you. They don't see you as, as opposition. Um, and it's to do with, I guess, your underbelly. You're not, you're not tough enough. You need to be better at blah, 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 blah. It was, a, it was a list of different things he said. So he's very, very honest. He will tell you things you don't want to hear um, because it's, it's the easy option to, to not know that, but he's not scared of telling you exactly how it is. So what? that respect – sorry, Sammy. That, that, that respect, is that all about results when you when – you talk about all the different things that weren't respected. Do you change that by purely through results or do you change that by strength and conditioning? Do you change that by um, mental approach? How, how do you think he went about changing that perception? I can't say for sure, but I would say it's just all the little things. So it's an accumulation of things. It's not about, right, you need to be 50% better at this instantly. It's just to build up to things. And I think you could certainly see that with Scotland's progression over those last six years where, where Scott has been involved. Yeah, so he would have put those messages across to the players and the staff and the staff have obviously bought into that because that's a very big thing um, is they're all buying in. I'm just trying to think of their, their, their slogan. They always put on their hashtags after the games with, with Scotland Rugby. I can't think of it for the time being. But, again, um, that's Scott's big thing. The biggest thing I've have found over the years is his honesty and he's not scared to upset people. So I'm very interested to see how that progresses into Australian rugby. How, how Clearly, it's not just about Scotland, the national team, even though his role is to make Scotland as, as good as possible. But in terms of the domestic scene, how what's he done there in terms of or Edinburgh and Glasgow? and Well, again, similar, similar. So I think one of the issues that certainly uh, both the pro teams, they just didn't have enough resources. You know, it was certainly something when I was playing in the country that we didn't have enough resources. We weren't training at the right venues. Like we were training, and don't get me wrong, they, they did their best with what they had, but we weren't training on... We were training outdoors all the time and, you know, it's pretty miserable weather at times in the middle of uh, winter in Scotland, like December, January, start of February. It's not very pleasant and we'd be training on back pitches full of mud all the rest of it. That's just the way it was and we had to get by on that. Now I see, you know, different things that come up on Facebook and Twitter about where the guys are training and they're training in beautiful indoor facilities <laughs> and all this type of stuff. I know the players have been rewarded a lot more handsomely with, uh, you know, I guess their wages and everything else. So it's certainly been a change uh, and it's something that I know that um, the CEO at the time, back in, I think he was 2012, he started around the same time as um, as Scott. They put, they gave the pro teams a lot more, or just a lot more resources to 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 be better, to be more professional. And you certainly see that Edinburgh, uh, certainly now they've certainly jumped up. But Glasgow's been the benchmark for the last couple of years. Glasgow won the competition about three years ago. I think before that. They were a semi-finalist, then they were a finalist, then they won the comp. And they're, I think they're sitting at the moment, they're top of their pool, they're a point above Munster. And then the other division, I can't recall, I think Leinster might be leading that one. So, you know, they're both teams. I think Edinburgh's third in their conference as well. So they're very – both the clubs have certainly improved over the last six years out of sight from where they potentially were. Indeed. So his effect, or Scott Johnson's effect on, on Australian rugby is going to be fascinating. When does he arrive? It's, it's not until – uh, April, May, is that right, mate? I think, I think the, right after I the think, Six Nations yeah, that we're jetting right. so, down. So, so soonish. I think that's yeah. the plan. Yeah. yeah. He had a brief uh, visit out here, I think, over the festive period, didn't he? But, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of intrigue as to how that's all going to play out, uh, particularly the, the selection-wise with uh, with Michael O'Connor being involved as well. We, we You know, there's I guess it opens it right up for, for players that weren't rated under Michael Checker to suddenly get a look in under the, the new regime now. Mm. That all will be very interesting when that plays out. And of course... The end game in the immediate term, which doesn't really make sense, but bear with me, um, 
we will be working towards the World Cup in Japan and that's where the rubber really hits the road for, for the Wallabies. Um, I guess there's the, the rugby uh, championship before then. Um, what, what's your expectation for Australia, Dan? Um, first up at, at the World Cup, I'll get you on Scotland in just a moment, but for Australia initially. Well, obviously they're going to – well, it's like any – I think any team is, goes into a competition believing they can win. If they don't go into a competition believing they can win, especially a World Cup, everyone gears up for that, then you shouldn't be there. That's just the reality of it. Now, I know you've got to be realistic. There's certain countries which probably know they can't win, but they've still got to have that hope that each game they go in, they've got to contest. Now, the, I always believe in this. The first thing you've got to do is get to the quarterfinals. doesn't matter what happens, you've got to finish in the top two in your pool because the reality is if you lose two games in your pool, you're not going to finish in the top two. So I always say that for me, obviously you want to finish top of your pool and progress and potentially get the lighter of the quarterfinals, but it's not always works out that way. First things first, got to get to the quarters. Now I'd like to think Australia should be thinking at least a semi-final. Once they get in there, it's a 50-50 shot. That's mm. the way I look at it. It's a, it's a tough pool for Australia. They're in pool D uh, against Wales, Georgia, Fiji and Uruguay. Um, now, is it a tough pool though? You'd take that. It's, you'd definitely it's, take it's, that. There's tougher pools. No, no, there are tougher pools. But but <laughs> what I'm saying, based on last year, and let's hope we see a massive improvement from the Wallabies. But based on last year, you would have to say that Fiji is a danger game. Yeah. It is, but they are helped by the fact that it would be Fiji's first game of the tournament, and they just don't simply come together much throughout the year. That is true. Um, is that true. changing though? Have they been given more time? To prepare. In the lead-up. In the lead-up. I think a lot of times when, um, you know, the, the Fijis, the Samoans, they get together, it's a very, very short period of time they have, maybe a week beforehand, especially in the Northern Hemisphere when they come over for those November tests. They don't get much time together and that's where sometimes we do see them struggle. They might be competitive early doors and they'll get blown away. I think if they've got a bit more go time or pre- preparation time, similar, I go back to the 07 World Cup where that was one of the most phenomenal games of rugby, the Fiji-Wales game where you'll ever see uh, where Fiji end up getting on top. Again, they had a period of time together where they were able to to work each other out, get real camaraderie within the group. And I, I, I hear what we're saying. Now, obviously on paper we should say Australia should be winning that game. Of course they should. But it's the big unknown. Mm. And that's the thing. If Fiji turn up that day and they make it very difficult, they – out enthused, whatever it may be, um, brutalise Australia and get on top, then... One thing about Fiji, Ben Volleyball, who's been a fair bit of time at the Tars and a bit of time at the Crusaders, I think he's now starting at Racing because of the the injury to the retirement from Pat Lambie, Dan Carter not being allowed there. So good opportunity for Volleyball, who's their first five to continue playing against kind of almost the best in the world. Well, he's, again, we mentioned his name, he's with Finn Russell. So the Scottish standoff, he's at Racing as well. So they're pretty much sharing the duties. So again, but being exposed to the players that he would be exposed to at the moment has been phenomenal for him. And his, I guess, rise to to where he is today is, has been great to watch because he was a, you know, a standout with Southern Districts in the in the shoot shield. And it's great to see him doing so well. And he will certainly be important to the, his Fiji national team. Um, and of course, Wales will be a, a, a tough gig for uh, Australia at, at the World Cup given the way they are playing at the moment. Um, Pool A, Ireland, Scotland, Japan, Russia and Samoa. So the expectations would be at least a quarterfinal for, for Scotland. Yeah, again, I think if you look at the the last World Cup, was the, sorry, the 2015, obviously they lost to Australia in the quarterfinals, mm-hmm. which is a game 
we talked about off air, which was a bit of a tough one to take. But um, but again, you know, in 2011 when I was there, we expected – or not expected, but we thought we would go through. We recognised that the tough game of that pool was going to be Argentina in Wellington and everything was leading to a victory our way and somehow the ball goes wide to – I think it was Emma Asino was his name and he beat five of our players and he scores a try and breaks Scottish hearts and we missed out on making the, the quarterfinals. So – Again, it, it could happen. You'd like to think with that pool, we should be able to go through. But That Japanese fixture will be interesting to say. Well, exactly. And then we saw what they did last World Cup. Mm. You know, like that. Yeah. Who, no one would have predicted what they did against South Africa in, that first, in their first round. The, the balance of power has undoubtedly changed a bit, hasn't it, with what Ireland's done, um, England resurging again now. And, and Wales obviously been in the Wallabies last year in that drought. Um, if countries like Scotland, there might have been a little bit of an inferiority complex at times playing the, the southern superpowers, but not, not anymore by the looks of things. No, I think, again, you know, a couple of years ago when Australia, uh, Scotland came out to Australia and they beat them, again, that sort of thing, you, know, you can just build confidence within a team. Um, and that's what, I guess, over the years we've mentioned, you know, the coaches, so the Vern Cotters and the Gregor Townsend now have really built that belief within the team. And there might have been, gone are the days where you play Scotland, for example, that Scott Johnson uh, idea of, oh, we're coming here, let's play a few games of golf and, you know, we'll get by. That's gone now. If you come in with that mindset, Scotland will beat you. Mm. It's just as simple as that. That's the reality. So you've got to prepare all these, not just Scotland, but all the Northern Hemisphere teams. They're, they're, they're tough. All the Six Nations games, France have proved it over the years, you know, countless times. We write them off. All of a sudden they come out and they'll beat you by 30. And you'll say, well, how is that even possible? Mm. Well, it is possible because they've got quality. And when they all put it together, they're very, very tough. Mm. Um, well, they're, they're, every tournament needs a pool of death, of course. And if Pool C is this year's pool of death, England, France, Argentina, USA and Tonga. So, you know, one of those three, England, France, Argentina, are not going to make it through to the quarters. Yes, indeed. Well, does, does Eddie Jones, he'll, he'll be quick to Because England remind. are getting used to it by now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, – we can't wait. And, and, Dan, I don't know whether you caught up with the news, but um, Fox Sports got the uh, rights last week or 48 games. So, Fantastic. you know, it's, it is – it is terrific to to know that um, our subscribers are going to be able to see all 48 games um, live and in high definition, in 4K, ultra high definition. Even, Bloody outstanding news. Yeah. Nick, Nick uh, next week on the pod, got a good guest coming up. Special guest, Special. Uh, the boss of Rugby Australia, Raylene Castle, joining us on the Fox Rugby podcast last week. So what we thought we'd do is uh, if you're listening and you've, you've got some questions, you can hit us up on Twitter or the Fox Rugby Facebook, iTunes. iTunes, is that how, that oh, how you do whatever. it? That what the kiddies do nowadays, is it? It's not just right. the kiddies, Come everyone. Right. iTunes is for adults Sorry. as well, mate. Okay. <laughs> it's, been, Sorry. it's been around a while. <laughs> what about Instagram? Can we, can we do it yeah. on Instagram? I'm, I'm tired for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll bow to you on that one. What about Face Snap? Can we, oh, can we no. do face snap? No, okay. You're, you're not Greg Clark. You're better than this. <laughs> <laughs> you've only just or, or turned Kersey, You've Kersey, only just turned sixty now. Or, or Kernsey on uh, on uh, Kersey is on Facebook, which is terrific. But he just has no idea how to turn his phone on to get to get onto Facebook. <laughs> Small so. steps, exactly. One step at a time. Dan, thanks very much for joining us today. Um, really good to to catch up, and uh, I know that you'll be fascinated to to watch the Super Rugby season progress, and and then the the, the Wallaby. And, and then the World Cup as well. And uh, good luck to your Scotland for this one remaining game in uh, the Six Nations. Yeah, thanks, guys. I've really enjoyed being here. It's been good to chat rugby. Dan, pa- Dan Parks, ladies and gentlemen.